been with so many people in New England who are praying for that event. As a matter of fact, I'll be talking a little bit about that little bit of history of revival at the conclusion of this message. But I, uh, I urge you to be in prayer because unless God does something, it's just a waste of time, right? The Victorian poet, Robert Browning, wrote the following words. God is in heaven. All is right with the world. Well, true, God is in heaven, and He is in total control of the universe. But it is far from being all is right with the world. That's why the Lord Jesus taught us to pray on earth as it is in heaven, because on earth it's not as it is in heaven. In fact, our Lord Jesus Christ tells us, as we will see in the passage today, in effect, that as surely as the water collects behind a great dam, so with the day of His return is held until the appointed time. We've been looking through the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 24, and if you haven't been here, download it so you can really follow the words of our Lord here regarding the signs of His return. And He spells them out, and He gives them to us so that every believer will understand that the day is coming when He will take us home. We have been seeing how this has been the longest answer to a question. In fact, it's really two questions, not one, but two questions that the disciples asked Jesus. But this is the longest answer He has ever given. Um, when they asked two questions, they said, when these things will happen, because He said this building is going to, not two stones will be on top of each other, which was unthinkable for them to think of that huge edifice is going to collapse and said, when is that going to happen? And then when is the, what are the signs of your return? So these are really two questions, and I've been trying to answer them as we're going along. Uh, he answered the first question uh, on what's going to happen in 70 A.D., and he said, in those days, and he told them that those who live in Judea, they need to run, go up to the mountain because it's going to be dreadful days, and there were dreadful days, 70 A.D., when the Romans came and literally destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And then he's talked about the signs of his return. Those are the two questions. The 70 A.D. is fulfilled with details. And the distinction between his answer to that question about 70 A.D. and at the signs of the end of time, he talked about those days because there were many days, and these things are happening throughout many days. But on that day, his return is going to be quick, it's going to be fast, it's in a twinkling of an eye, the Bible said, in a twinkling of an eye, and I can't wait. Why? Because they were probably thinking in their mind, as I shared with you in the very beginning, that they thought the two, th the two events are going to be one after the other, that He's going to reveal Himself, that He's going to come back with glory after the resurrection, and He will reign and rule in righteousness. In the first message, we saw the six signs that He says, and the reason He gave them the imagery of a birth, of birth pains. 
It's to tell them that it's going to be a long time. It's going to be a while. There is a time between when the, the pregnancy starts and then the baby arrives. And it says, as you see those birth pains, six of them, we looked at them in details, you know that the day of deliverance is near. And secondly, we saw the times of tribulation in verse 29 uh, in, 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 in the, next, the last message. But here in verse 29 of Matthew 24, I hope and I know that most of you already have it open, Matthew 24, beginning at verse 29, our Lord starts by saying, immediately after the tribulation, immediately, verses 29 to 35, and that's what we're going to look at today. He tells us about some global catastrophes. And so, if you got this passage open in front of you, if you don't, there's a pew in the Bible, the, um, in the pews in front of you, there are Bibles, and you can grab one and follow with us, page 1539. Found it? Let's stand in honor of the words of our Lord, and I'm going to read the first verse as we have been doing, and then I'll let you read the rest of it. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Go ahead. Precious Heavenly Father, I confess publicly, as I confess publicly, privately, that unless the Holy Spirit open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, to see these wonderful truths from your words that uttered by your lips, Lord Jesus, we will not understand them. No matter how much eloquence the preacher tries to implement unless you speak. And so, Father, I pray that you would hide me in the wounded side of Jesus, that your people will only hear your voice, for I pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said amen. amen. Be seated, please. Throughout Christian history, as you read Christian history, you find that faithful, true, genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ throughout church history, they have waited for the day of the return of the Lord. All have looked forward with anticipation of our Lord's coming back. True, genuine, faithful believers in every generation were motivated to live righteously 
and look forward to the day of his return. Here is an interesting observation, at least on my part. <laughs> While the whole world come to a standstill and celebrate his first coming, just about everywhere in the world come to a standstill to celebrate Christmas, there are very, very, very few people, very few of his children, faithful believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who truly look forward to celebrating his second coming. That shouldn't surprise us. And in just three verses, that's verses 29, 30, and 31, our Lord gives us the supreme signs of his return. The sun will darken. The moon will not give its light. The stars literally will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. A mere few years ago, we would not probably have understood what that means. But now, scientists, as they're able to observe the laws that God has placed in His universe, they're able to see things that they could not see before. I want to put a very short video, very short video to show you what I mean. Asteroids are going to be one of our biggest problems for humanity. It's about survival. There's no doubt they will strike again. It would be a disaster far beyond biblical proportions. Look at the moon. Every night it comes out to remind us that on cosmic scales, the universe is violent. The universe can be catastrophic. It's the year 2029. And an asteroid that scientists have been tracking for decades is passing close to Earth. The asteroid is about three football fields wide. Its name is Apophis, after the ancient Egyptian god of destruction. According to the latest predictions, Apophis won't hit Earth in 2029. But as it passes through a seemingly nondescript area of space nearby, the world's scientific community goes on high alert. The impact in 2036 is thousands of times stronger than the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. The immediate crater is as wide as the island of Manhattan. But even if Apophis doesn't hit Earth, there's no doubt that something else eventually will. These are not Christian science, but scientists, but they are observing the laws that God has placed. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. <clears throat> but in the parallel account to this one in Matthew 24, there's a parallel account in Luke's gospel. Luke 21, verses 25 and 26. And there uh, it says, there will be dismay among the nations. That means the whole globe. It tells us that the whole world is going to be in chaos of utter confusion. Probably what we're seeing in Afghanistan today it will be a commonplace all over the globe. There will be people be perplexed at, at the size of the tsunamis and the earthquakes. Men's heart, the Bible said, will faint out of fear. 
Now, the Greek word for faint here is that a strong man literally will stop breathing uh, out of fright. As you heard me say this throughout the series of messages, we've always had things like this happen. We've had earthquakes, we had floods, and we had all these things have happened throughout history. But at the end times, what our Lord is saying about the birth pains is that the end times, uh, from the understanding of the labor pain, <laughs> is that the expected mom uh, knows this labor pain when they come in greater intensity and when they come in greater frequency, you know that the baby is about to arrive. Don't ever forget that God our God is not only the creator of the universe, but He's also the sustainer of the universe. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus is the one who upholds all things. What are the all things? The whole universe by the word of His power. He sustains the universe by His power. He upholds all of the stars and the galaxies by His power. And on that day, when just for one nanosecond He withholds that sustaining power, and you're going to see that some thousands of stars are going to pile up in the sky. They're going to create catastrophe in the universe. As I say, this thing about the reason astronomers and scientists are able to say things like this is they've been able to predict some things because of this coming stellar events that, uh, and they're able to see that ahead of time is because God ordered the laws that control the stars in their orbits. And they've been able to observe the patterns and able to give us some predictions. But when our Lord decides to withdraw His hand in the slightest, these stars are going to careen through the space. Believe it or not, 700 years before our Lord Jesus Christ, the prophet Isaiah prophesied exactly the same thing that will happen at the end times. In Isaiah 13, 10, for the stars of the heavens and the constellation will not give light. The sun will darken at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Beloved, listen to me. Our Bible is nothing if it is not consistent. The Word of God is consistent. When will His coming will be? Immediately after these things take place. These events will truly be global, will be global, and will be seen from every corner of the globe. Everyone is going to look up, and they're going to see it from their corner of the globe. And that's what the words every nation means. This is their way of saying it will be global. No one is going to miss it. No one is going to miss it. Every part of the universe is going to observe these signs. And as one watches these things, then immediately the Son of God appears. I can't wait. Verse 30. Verse 30 indicates that Jesus' appearance will be the very final signal. When the world is in a state of shock, as it were, 
horrified at these catastrophes, our Lord Jesus Christ is going to manifest Himself with all of His splendor, glory, majesty, and righteousness. Uh, in the darkness of midnight, He will shine like the noon hour. In the midst of the devastation of tribulation, He will appear in His glorious, uh, unparalleled power. Uh, the sight of His blazing glory uh, will make all those who have rejected Him seek to hide, but there will be nowhere to hide. Those who have rejected Him, those who have scorned His name, those who have hated His followers, those who have sought to improve His image because they didn't like the image that they have in the Bible, and they want to improve His image, they will be ashamed. Those who blasphemed His name, those who have persecuted His children, those who sought to remove His name from public life, the Bible said they'll be mourning, and they were going to wreathe in pain of sorrow and regret. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Don't miss. I want to give you five words. I pray to God you'll never forget. Verse 30. That's where they come from. I'm not making them up. With power and great glory. You got these? Let's see if we can say them together. With power and great glory. Can you shout them out? With you see, His power is already demonstrated in the uh, cataclysmic events that already have shaken in the heaven, but, but that's not all. <laughs> he will demonstrate His power by overthrowing Satan and his demons once and for all. <laughs> he will not be there to torment a believer. He will not be there to tempt the believers. He will not be there. He and his demons are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. He will demonstrate His power by protecting all of His elect. Not one of them will be lost. He will demonstrate His power by establishing His rule in righteousness. He will demonstrate His power by conquering all of His enemies. He will demonstrate His power by destroying the Antichrist. He will demonstrate His power by destroying those who worship the beast. He will demonstrate His power by ending sin and the power of sin. He will demonstrate His power by bringing everlasting righteousness and peace. Demonstrating of His power will be seen in His eliminating of droughts and tornadoes and floods and starvation. But that's not all. That's not all. Equal to His power is His great glory. Just I want you to, I want you to think about this. Don't, don't just sit there and, and, and just please think about this. <laughs> We're going to see Him as He is on the throne of His glory. We're going to see Him. <laughs> Beloved, no human being ever seen God as He is. No one. No one. Adam and Eve saw a glimpse of His glory, even though He walked with them in the, sh in, the, in, the sh in the shade of the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. The children of Israel caught a glimpse of Him as He passed on Mount Sinai. Isaiah 
And when in chapter 6, he only saw a glimpse of his glory, and he got unglued, <laughs> literally unglued. Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, they saw the face of Jesus, and they said it shone like, a sun, like the sun, and his garment were white as light, but they only saw a glimpse of his glory. No human being has ever seen him in full of his glory, unimpeded glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we will see him in all his glory. We will see him in the fullness of his glory. Oh, listen to me. It's going to be so overwhelming. It's going to be, it's going to be disc bubbling. I know I'm for one, I'll be speechless. But that's not all. That's not all. Verse 31. Those who have rejected him will be mourning and they'll be weeping and wreathing in pain. The angels will be blowing the trumpet. In the Bible, always when the trumpet is blown, it always indicates some very major, major, major event. In this case, it will be the assembling of the elect from every tribe, from every nation, from every language, from every tongue. They will be assembled and the trumpet will sound, and the assembly will gather to worship and bow down and cast our crowns at his feet. Right after that, our Lord Jesus goes on immediately to talk about the parable of the fig tree. Now, this is verse 32. Mark it in your Bible, because I'm going to really speak to you Honestly, there are so many theologians and, and preachers and others who allegorize everything in the Bible. Now, the Bible sometimes allegorizes things, and I only allegorize what the Bible allegorizes. I don't make up the stuff because I'm not bright enough to, to know how to do that. But there are some people who just allegorize everything. And interpreting the, fig, the parable of the fig tree, you said, watch the, the fig tree, they say that fig tree represents the political state of Israel. Now, listen, you know my support for Israel. You know that. That's, that's good. Nobody paid a heavier price, but you know that. But our Lord Jesus did not say this. He did not say the fig tree is Israel. He didn't say that. He didn't say the fig tree represents Israel. Our Lord is not telling the disciples to anticipate 1948. They would have been waiting for my birth, I guess. <laughs> Israel and I were born the same year. <laughs> he didn't say, neither his disciples nor the subsequent generation prior to 1948 could have even understood that. Others saw that the budding leaves of the fig tree represent a spiritual revival in the new state of Israel. Where did they get this stuff? I don't know. The, as you know, modern Israel is very secular. Now, I have the unique privilege of preaching in many a Messianic congregation in Israel. I have so many dear Messianic friends in Israel, and, 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 and I'm in constant touch with them, and I've preached in many of their synagogues, their, their assemblies, and, and they're my very dear friends I love dearly. 
But this parable of the fig tree is far less complicated than these people make it to be. It's a very simple parable. I'm going to explain it to you. Are you ready? Some of you are. (laughs) Jesus is giving them a parable that makes sense and is easy to understand. The children can understand it. All the people can understand. Everybody can understand it. Every generation understood what the fig tree is. I want to explain it. In the land of ancient Palestine, modern Israel, fig trees are everywhere. Every, more than olive trees. Fig trees, are, every backyard had a fig tree. Everybody understood and, and what the fig tree is all about. They're familiar with the fig tree. And the fig tree often used in the Bible to illustrate one thing and one thing only, and that's where our Lord is, trying, is, is illustrating in the same, in the same vein. What is it? That when the branches become tender and puts forth leaves, it is springtime. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) I told you it is so simple. (laughs) And springtime means that the summer is not far behind. When the sap begins to flow into the branches and the new leaves bud, start putting away your sweaters. Right? Summer is coming. Even children understood that. Spring means harvest is around the corner. And throughout the Gospel of Matthew, the figure of the harvest means judgment. It is a separation between the wheat and the chaff. It's going to be the separation between the believers and the non-believers. And the wheat goes to the storehouses and the chaff is burnt. Hear me right, please. Hear me right, please. Our Lord is saying that when you see these fake leaves, the day of judgment is around the corner. When you see all these signs that he has talked about, when you begin to see the signs of the birth, the birth pains, our Lord is saying to the generation that is living immediately prior to the return of Christ that it is time to wake up. It is time to wake up. Learn from the fig trees and realize that the summer judgment is not far off. Beloved, I believe, and I always make sure that when I say something that I am not saying the Scripture, that I personally believe in my own heart that this process of separation has begun. And we're seeing it with our own eyes. People turning their back on the faith, people who preach the gospel turning their back on the gospel, while people signing the names to follow Christ at the cost of their life. The Taliban are going in Afghanistan door to door, and they're not contented to ask them if they were Christians. They want to see their phone, and they want to see if they have a Bible app. 
before they shoot them. And these people lovingly, thoughtfully, happily dying for Jesus. I was sharing with the pastoral team when my wife and I were in Europe last month. We met with a man who works with us in Europe. Now, when he converted to Christ, his family wanted to kill him. And then when he married a Christian woman, the Christian family were unhappy about him being a Muslim convert. They want to tell the police on him. And the man says, you know, living or dying, it doesn't matter. Let me tell you, when I see that kind of faith, and I see departure from the faith in the West, I know that the time of separation has begun. Then look at verse 33 and 34. He spells it even further. Even so, even so, when you see all these things, realize that he's near. He's near. And then he goes in to say, truly I say to you, this generation, what generation is he talking about? The generation, the gen- are you listening? Say amen. amen. The generation that will see these signs, that generation will not pass away. They will see the return of Christ. Listen to me. The generation that will witness the signs of the birth pains, the generation that will witness the tribulation, the generation that will witness these cosmic catastrophes, the generation that will be alive immediately before the return of Christ, that generation will see the return of the Lord. That generation will, pass, will not pass away until they see His return. That generation will be privileged to see Him appearing in the sky with all the saints who have gone before us. They will be privileged to see His coming in His power and great glory. May this be our generation. May this be our generation. Let me stop here for a moment and say, if this, all this, whether you're watching online or watching Kingdom Sat, whatever you're watching around the world, whether you're here in this beautiful sanctuary, if all of this fills you with fear and anxiety, that can only be one reason. You've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. And you can do that today. You can do that now and be assured of eternity with Him in heaven. Those who will be terrified on that day are only those who have refused to accept His gracious invitation to repent of their sins and be forgiven of their sins. Listen to me. Ever since Jesus' arms were stretched by others on that cross, He willingly stretching His arms from that moment on to whomsoever would come to Him in repentance and in faith, asking for His forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. His arms are wide open, but they will not be wide open for very long. The day will come when that's going to end. We're going to talk about that more in the next coming, in the coming message. 
that as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the day of the Son of Man. Have you ever seen days worse than the days of Noah? Today. The difference between those who love Jesus and those who have rejected or ignored Him is the longing for His return. That's the difference. See, they're both sinners. They're both sinners. The believers are sinners, but they, they, they acknowledge their sin. But they also acknowledge that desperately need the Savior to save them from their sin. The non-believers don't acknowledge their sin, or if they do, when they get caught. You see them on television, right? And they say, well, I'm not perfect. When the cameras are running, well, I'm not perfect. But in their mind, they really are. They really, they, they, they actually refuse to acknowledge their need for a Savior. That means they still think they are perfect. They think that they're good enough for God, and that God has no choice but to accept them as they are. Listen, I talk to non-believers all day long. I know what they think. Beloved, I want to tell you this is the height of arrogance. This is the height of pride. I remember my dear friend, Dr. John Stott, a mentor and Man with me with the Lord is to say, the number one reason why people don't come to Christ is pride. Certainly, they'll be terrified on that day, according to Jesus. Those who cursed him will have gnashing of teeth. Last words in this passage. As if our Lord making sure, just making sure. Maybe if you were speaking here, you would say, hear me right. <laughs> you say, want you hear me, hear me right. He's saying, look at the last words here in this passage. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This prophecy will happen, will take place. The universe will fail. The galaxies will collapse. The stars will fall from the sky. Earth will be burning. And yet, what Jesus had prophesied will be fulfilled, just like he prophesied about the year 70 A.D. happened. In the last message, I left you with saying the two things I do. As well, I work every waking hour even when I'm sitting still, I'm working. My mind is always working and always thinking. I keep my eyes on the signs of the birth pains. And the second thing I told you I do is pray for revival. Why? Because the, next, the, the, the very next verse, 36, we're going to see that in the next message. He said, no one knows the hour. Nobody knows the hour. So we live every day with expectations. And so I am waiting with expectations, but also praying for a revival, Revi praying for an awakening. Nobody knows the hour. So I want to conclude today by giving you a motivation a historic motivation to pray for a revival, to pray for a revival. 
And all my colleagues in the middle, in the, in leading the way were asking me to show you this video so that they showed it on the air and they want you to see it so you can start praying for our brothers and sisters in New England. America has experienced dark days before. I am privileged, you've heard me say this probably before, 77, 78 in California to sit at the feet of the man who's considered to be the greatest authority on the history of revivals and awakening, Dr. J. Edwin Orr, an Irishman who was living in California, and I were just privileged Boldly, I went in and asked him if I can spend time with him. He said, absolutely. I'm so privileged. The Bible said, you have not because you ask not. I tend to ask. <laughs> and I learned so much from that man. And he taught me a great deal about the history of revivals. And, and he talked about some other dark days in the history of America. Perhaps not as dark as these days where people actually taking pride in their sin. Perhaps not as dark as these days when there is such utter disregard to the Word of God and hatred. Perhaps not like today where so many people, experts, so-called experts, are predicting the eclipsing, not just of America, but the Western civilization and the rise of China. Perhaps not as today where there is a complete moral decline, but nonetheless, there were dark days in America. I'm going to tell you about them. There were bleak days. I want to share this historical account to motivate you to pray for our awakening. Immediately after the War of Independence, immediately after the War of Independence, a great victory, I always tell you, be careful because Satan has an opportune time. And the, the moment after great victory, that's his opportune time, and that's what happened as a nation. The moral fiber and the spiritual condition of America were in a tailspin. Alcoholism was rampant. Crime was on the rise. Church attendance had plummeted. John Marshall, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the day, had written a note, a letter, to James Madison, the father of the Constitution. And in part, he says in the letter, the Christian church in America was too far gone ever to be redeemed. End of quote. Thomas Paine, one of the intellectual leaders of the American Revolution, predicted, he said, Christianity will be forgotten in America within 30 years. A poll that was taken at Harvard University among the students, they found not one single student believed in Jesus. Not one. On Princeton campus, the vast majority of students were engaged in what is back then called the filthy speech movement. In Williams College, students 
held mock communion and blasphemed the name of Jesus. In New Jersey, students burned Bible in a public bonfire. Crimes was rampant. Women were afraid to walk out in the street. In 1794, I want you to remember that date, okay, because this is important. 1794. As the new American nation was sinking into godliness, godlessness and depravity, a Connecticut pastor by the name of Isaac Buckus began holding prayer meetings in his church. One purpose, God sent a revival. Later on, Bacchus formed an alliance with 24 New England ministers with the goal of praying regularly for spiritual awakening throughout America. They called that prayer series a concert of prayer. Remember, that was the year 1794. God bless you. I'm not very good at this because I'm dyslexic. I reverse numbers, so I'm, I want you to check me out here. 1794. In 1798, churches throughout the 13 former colonies were holding prayer meetings, confessing their sins, and pleading with God. for a revival. An amazing nationwide revival broke across America and especially on college campuses. My beloved friends, change can and will happen when God's people repent of their sin and turn to Him. Revival starts with repentance, and repentance starts with us. Not the outside world, not the government, not the political parties, not society, but us. When God's people repent of their sin and turn to Him and become fervent in prayer, then watch out, watch out, watch out. God is going to move among His people. Can I get an amen? amen? Pray with me. Father, we have nothing, we have nothing in us that qualifies us to come into the throne room of God. We have nothing in us that gives us the gumption to come and ask for something great as a great awakening, except that we're invited by Jesus to come. And on the strength of that invitation, we come. And on the strength of that invitation, we turn to you. And we ask you, Father, maybe one more time, Send an awakening that sweeps across the world that the world will know in these last days that there's a God in heaven and He's soon coming back to take His church. Keep our eyes on you. Keep our eyes on you. Keep our eyes on you. For we pray this 
In your name, Jesus, and all of God's people said amen.